So we are in uh, Titus 3 today. Back in early September, first weekend, we began going through this, this book of Titus, uh, and we're finishing it up today. This letter that uh, was written by the Apostle Paul to a, a young pastor that we know as the book of Titus. And uh, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up chapter 3. We're going to be reading verse 8 through verse 15. Uh, and you can follow along that way, or if you prefer, you can just sit and listen as I read it out loud here. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in, in the faith. Grace be with you all. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, would you wash away whatever stresses of life have followed us into the sanctuary today? Give us the faith needed to see your word as your word. And may we understand it and, and be changed by, by you and, and for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So some years ago, Laura's brother began raising bees in downtown Dallas. Not really the area you'd think it would be. Uh, he has these two beehives, and they're right outside this window. So you can sit safely and watch the bees come and go. And uh, it's really in intriguing. One of the visits, though, Beckham and I got to put on those suits that make you look like an astronaut and actually open up the beehive and get to see all these things. And it was um, such an interesting thing to do. I, I was instantly intrigued with bees, especially as her brother began to just uh, explain more about all the different roles that these bees performed. Uh, and yet this uh, amazing unity that keeps the entire hive together and functioning in, uh, in proper fashion. And see, there's these, these different roles that the bees have, and they serve just this role for, for periods of time. There are um, nurse bees who, who make sure that the larvae, the, the baby bees, as they're being formed, are, are fed. Uh, there are drone bees that work to fertilize the eggs. There's the, the undertaker bee, and that's what its actual name is. And his whole, whole job is to take dead bees and pull them out of the hive so as to not create a big mess in there. Uh, there's the architect bee who, who builds the honeycomb, actually creates the stuff that the rest of the bees are going to work with. There's the attendant bees who basically follow the queen around and just take care of her, clean her, uh, make sure she gets fed everything she needs wherever she goes. There's the, the forager bees. The forager bees are the ones you know. They're the ones that sting you and they kill you. You know, you want to kill them. But, um, that you see what they're doing is they're out collecting pollen and they're bringing it back. And in fact, they spend their whole life just to create a, a twelfth a teaspoon of honey. Think of that next time you have some. Um, 
There's actually a guard bee that sits at the, the door of the hive. You might not even notice this. I remember looking for it. But the guard bee uh, lets all the bees that are supposed to be there in, but he keeps bumblebees and wasps and other bees that might try to get in uh, from entering into the hive. And of course, there's the queen bee, who is just the central focus of the hive, which everything is, is focused around. Um, and I, I love just seeing the unity of the hive. And I love the fact that it, it not only, the unity not only makes the hive uh, self-sustainable for their own existence, but uh, the way that their unity and their working together becomes a blessing for the wider community that they exist in. You see, each hive really just covers one small area, but collectively the hives around the world, uh, those little bees, tiny little bees, pollinate one-third of, of the world's crops. One-third. See, without bees, there would be no avocados, no blueberries or strawberries or apples, no grapes or peaches. And maybe most important, there'd be no coffee. You'd all be asleep right now. Um, so think about that next time you want to kill that bee buzzing around you. So anyway, I, I mentioned these bees because the, the unity is essential to their flourishing. Uh, in the same way that unity is necessary in, in Christ's church for flourishing, for the covenant community uh, to go well, and also for, for the good of the communities that the church has existed. You know, even more than that, though, we see in Ephesians 1.10, or we learn there that uh, the fulfillment of God's eternal plan is this, and this is a quote from Ephesians 1.10, is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And, and this begins with, with unity in, in the church Christ's church, God's churches, and it's accomplished when we dwell in unity with, with Christ and the gospel. You see, so then the unifying focus of the church is, is not even unity. The unifying focus is, is Christ himself. A.W. Tozer once pointed out beautifully, he says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. And so, 100 worshipers gathering together, each one looking towards Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and just strive for closer fellowship. And so then... In this final passage that we have in the book of Titus, uh, we, we, we have a goal as, as to what we are to be focused on pursuing here. And what we, what we see is, is that we are to be, and also a goal as to what we are supposed to be avoiding so that there is this, this progress, this, this great godly unity. And in verse 8, Paul tells us uh, that phrase, you see it, the, the saying is trustworthy. And what he means by that is, uh, is he's referring back to verses 4 through 7, that, that run-on sentence. Remember, that's the saying that's trustworthy. We looked at it two weeks ago, and when we did, we were learning about the goodness of God, the loving kindness of God. We learned about the appearing of Jesus and the renewing power of the Holy Spirit, the, the, you know, the, the trustworthy spoken or saying spoke of the, the justification in Christ alone. Uh, by grace alone. And we saw the expectant hope of eternal life for God's people. In short, it's, it's the gospel. The gospel is the trustworthy saying, and it, it's worthy for you and I to place our trust in Jesus Christ. And so then as we, we read this in, in the next statement there, you know that Titus is to insist on these things. Those are the things. It's a, a call to insist on the gospel, to make the gospel your, your central focus. See, we, we probably speak too little of the gospel in our lives. 
um, I'm just as guilty of it. And I, I think, you know, because if we're honest, the, the gospel doesn't always fit into our weekday worldview. Uh, it should. We can. We, we really ought to speak more of the grace of God in our homes and wherever we find ourselves, you know, not out of compulsion, not, not, not something we feel we must do, but as an overflow of just the joy that we have, the, the, you know, the expectant hope that we, we have in the gospel. What's interesting then is that the expectant result of insisting upon the gospel is right here in the text is, is, is that the people of God would do something. What's it say there? You see that still at the end of verse 8. It says that they would be careful to devote themselves to good works. Careful to devote themselves to good works. Hopefully you remember, we, we saw this a while back, but uh, in Greek there's two ways that you can render this word or this phrase good works. There's the, the very straightforward, just the word good and the word works together. And then there's another case, which is the situation here in verses 8 and 14 today. And, and the phrase is beautiful and works. And so it's literally a, a beautiful works. And it's not just that the works themselves are beautiful, but they reflect back on, on the beauty of our Savior. Our Savior who has, has freed us to, to serve others in, in so many selfless, selfless ways. Um, really, it's, it's kind of crazy in this, this, this letter. This letter is merely 46 verses long, and yet six times in this letter there has been this call for the people of God to good works. I mean, what's so abundantly clear here is that um, Paul is making a connection between having received faith in Christ freely, uh, the gift of faith, and a life devoted to beautiful works. I think it, it might help us understand if we remember that uh, in Ephesians 2.10 that we learn that God prepared good works for us, right? Um, think of it this way. Say I... Say I told you I prepared a five-course meal for you. That might actually make you nervous. So say that Laura prepared a five-course meal for you. That's going to work a lot better. Um, and you'd look at this and think, okay, that's a great experience. It's going to be for my good, for my enjoyment. I'm excited about that. That might give you joy. The, the good works that God has prepared for us, are also for our joy. They're also for our, our progress. And so, you know, church, we've got to stop thinking of good works as some cumbersome homework assignment that we've been given. Um, you know, and, and just remember that they, they're for, for our enjoyment. Our enjoyment on a, on a level that is so much deeper than, than mere entertainment or uh, a good bottle of wine or whatever it is you want to throw in there. It's for the, the good of others and for the glory of our, our gracious God. And so they are the overflow of the gospel that you've been given. They are, um, you know, the overflow of the eyes you've been, you've been given to see and the heart you've been given to believe. I, I love the way that verses 8 and 14 here um, really put this emphasis on, on devoted there, right? Um, I think that weirds us out sometimes, but on being devoted to those good works. So, so we're to be intentional, we're to be expecting progress in this, this area when it comes to devotion. Uh, you see, this, this past week, uh, Laura and I usually go to the gym and, and ride bikes. I tell you those stories sometimes. But this week, we decided to take a, a yoga class. Uh, nothing weird, just a yoga class. Um, but anyway, the, the woman next to me, she was older. Got to be cautious here, right? She was older, like 60-something. I'll just say older. Let's go with that. Uh, not particularly fit. And... 
yet she was doing amazing. She was great at yoga, doing all these poses perfectly. Uh, I'm looking for examples and all these falling over weird things. Um, and I was terrible, couldn't do any of them. I am the worst yoga guy ever. Um, and, and yet after class, I'm pointing this out to Laura, like, you know, how is she so good? I'm so bad at this. Um, and, and she tells me, you know, she comes every week. She's devoted to this. I felt better at that moment. Um, but really, that's the same idea in anything, you know. There's this improvement that comes from being devoted to something, devoted to good works in this case. And so we may think that, you know, going uh, out of our way to help someone, or maybe waking up early to, to go serve somewhere. We may just think, you know, that's not really my thing. I don't, I don't do that. Um, but this call is a, a call to, be, to devote ourselves to these good works, to, to actively look for opportunities, opportunities that we know are there because according to Ephesians 2.10, God has prepared them for you long before you even existed. And I'll remind you, as always, it's, it's not a means to earn our salvation. Not at all. You know, Jesus has done that for us, absolutely, apart from works. But works flow out of that. It's an overflow of our satisfaction in Christ. That's, you know, why we can do good for others. You know, that's why you can, you can wake early in the morning and go serve a meal to, to someone in need, or, or why when your child wakes you at 2 a.m. and you have no idea why, you know, you can go and care for them with joy and not frustration and bitterness. What becomes clear here is that uh, the call to good works really, really pushes us. Get this. It really pushes us to engage in the world around us. You know, we're, we're instructed in, in the scriptures to not be of the world, but we've also been sent out into the world to make disciples and also to bless the communities that we, that we live in, to bless the community for the glory of God, which is why, while we certainly believe that there are situations that call for an intentional evangelistic effort, and really we probably need to do those more than we do, still, the most common way today is still to spread the gospel is accomplished uh, by the good and godly way that we live in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our dorms, the way that we engage the schools that we're in, or classical conversations, or soccer teams, or Greek houses, or your places of work, you know, basically whatever your day-to-day -day life is, that is still the most intentional way that the gospel gets spread. It's that everyday life of missional intentionality. And so as verse 8 then gives way to verse 9, we, we begin to learn that the gospel and the beautiful works have this, this value put to them. It says they are excellent and profitable. In the same place as verse 9 begins or ends really, uh, we also learn that these things, uh, there are things that are considered unprofitable and worthless. And part of our, our sanctification then, part of our, our growth in the Christian life is to determine or be able to distinguish uh, the difference between what is excellent and what is worthless. What is profitable from that which is unprofitable. And so then we've seen so far that to insist on the gospel uh, to insist on what is excellent and, and, and such. And so now we're seeing in verse 9 that we are to avoid what is worthless. And, and it tells us this, right? So, you know, what's to be shown here? What is shown here to be worthless and unprofitable? Well, it says foolish controversies. Foolish controversies. And, and I want you to hear that and hear the word foolish as if it means um, silly or, or unimportant. You know, it's not talking about the ideas like, um, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? Or... 
Um, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? It's not that kind of question it's talking about or controversy. The I- idea here of foolish in this context is, is those controversies that are, are dangerous. Those controversies that are divisive to, to split the unity. In fact, uh, a Bible, you know, a few Bible translations actually render that word foolish as, as stupid, making it read, avoid stupid controversies. Uh, and so we don't know the details of these false doctrines. A lot of people have made efforts to, to try to put it together. Uh, there's a chance it's the circumcision party, the party that's looking to the, the Jewish law as a means to salvation. Uh, really, it's, it's hard to say. And, and maybe that's a good thing that we can't really define this well, because maybe that just tells us that the early church, the church in this era, actually took this command to heart, and they gave no place for this false doctrine to, to get root and to grow, and so it simply faded away, and that's why we can't name it. So if there's People teaching these things, this is where it kind of gets a little interesting. Uh, people that are divisive. Um, the question arises, you know, what are we to do with those causing this division? Uh, keep in mind, this is, this is referring to someone in the church being divisive. That's, that's pretty significant here because we don't discipline people outside the church and we do not expect those who deny the gospel to live as though they believe the gospel. So this isn't judgment in that way. This is about someone in the church who professes faith in Christ and yet is stirring up division. And so the direction here that we see might seem quite cruel when we first hear it. It teaches when someone is teaching something false that we give them a warning. And then if they continue to stir up disunity, we're again to give them a warning. And if they continue after that to cause division, that individual is to be removed from the community. Does that sound harsh when you hear it? That sound heartless. Um, even that phrase, have nothing to do with them. So just humor me for a minute to try to give you this, this image. Imagine um, that this teaching, this controversy or foolish controversy is something more physical. Imagine um, someone comes into your home, you've welcomed them there, they certainly should be there, and, and yet suddenly they just start to break stuff. They go to your wall, and they take off your pictures, and they're like, these are the ugliest paintings I've ever seen, who's Monet, and they just throw it down and destroy it, right? Um, Imagine that happens, and so internally you're thinking, what is wrong with this idiot? But externally, you stay patient, and you correct them. You know, please don't do that, I like my paintings, let's leave them on the wall. Uh, Only a few days later, they come back, and this time, you know, they, they go to your fridge, and they open it up, and they just start pulling stuff out, and so like, uh, you know, a jar of strawberry jelly flies past your head, and uh, that carrot cake you've been waiting to eat goes squishing against the windows, and, and you're watching them do this. You know, at some point, it was absolutely foolish if you continue to allow this person into your home where they keep destroying things. And not because you're unwilling to suffer, but because they're unwilling to function properly in the home, and if you continue to let them come and destroy the home, eventually the home itself will cease to exist. And so the person in the, the passage is someone who is teaching something contrary to the gospel of grace. And, and then they continuously refuse to repent. Matthew 18 actually gives a fuller view, view of this, this process of church discipline. Matthew 18, uh, 15 through 17 says this. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others among you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, meaning treat them as someone outside the community. And see, that church discipline sounds harsh. There's actually three really wonderful goals involved in it, though, uh, um, whether we're talking just a simple correction or something as, as far as excommunication. First, the, the glory of God is at stake. Second, the, the purity of the church, you know, the unity that we're seeing here in, in Titus 3. And, and third, the restoration of the sinner, because um, correction and, and restoration, even if, if difficult, are, are the result of genuine love for someone. You know, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, you might know, he was a, a pastor in Germany during the, the Nazi regime. Eventually lost his life to it, but he wrote some amazing things about community. And um, he talked about just how he understood this correction and discipline and restoration, how these are displays of love. He, he said, nothing can be more cruel than that leniency which abandons others to sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. And that means also that, you know, being willing to, to, to accept someone back, to, to welcome someone back after they've repented into the community. Luke 17.3 clearly states that if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And, and again, in Galatians 6.1, you know, we, we learn that if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And so that's why when our, our passage today tells us uh, after being warned once, after being warned twice, we're to have nothing to do with that person uh, who is causing foolish controversy. Because those words there are, are describing the final stage of, of church discipline. It's excommunication. It's, it's never the result of sin committed. It's just not. It, it's the result of, of a lack of repentance for a clearly biblically defined sin. And that lack of repentance is showing someone lacks genuine faith in Christ. And because they are causing disunity, they're excluded from that community. See, this, this portion then comes to this end, but, but not before declaring that individual as, as self-condemned. You know, that's self-condemned. Their words, their actions, their false teaching, their refusal to repent shows that their heart lacks um, the work of God's grace within, which... You know, leaves us at a point of uh, continuing to pray, continuing to hope, continuing to, to call to repentance, and, and just hoping that God will give that joyous return. Um, you know, I, I recently read a story, it's not about church discipline, but it is about uh, discipline in a sense, and, and I, just the way that it can be appreciated later in life. Last, uh, last March here in the United States, uh, a 23-year-old boy in Mississippi named Muhammad Dakala uh, was arrested on a plane. He was boarding that plane to, to go and join ISIS. And uh, at his trial, he, he pleaded absolutely guilty to, to the charges. And he was sentenced eight years in prison, which seems crazy. Uh, and yet, after his, his trial, he actually thanked the H, uh, FBI agents who arrested him. He said, if I did go, I would be dead now. Thank you. And, and he just saw that, you know, as much as that... You know, in the moment, the, the arrest was, was maybe seen as just this terrible consequence of getting caught, and yet in time he realized that it saved his actual life. How much more uh, church discipline serves for our spiritual good, for our building up, for our restoration. So then as this, this letter then comes to an end, Paul addresses a, a few of these personal in, interactions. Uh, Tychicus, Tychicus is mentioned here. He was from Asia. 
Uh, you might remember him from Acts. He was on the third missionary journey with Paul. Zenos, the lawyer here, I think he's the only lawyer mentioned by name in Scripture. Uh, not mentioned anywhere else. We don't know anything else except for Paul was really excited to see him. Uh, Apollos here is fairly significant. You might remember Apollos, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. Uh, some were claiming that they followed Paul, and some were claiming that they followed uh, Apollos. And there's this, this potential for this rivalry going on, right? Um, and, and Paul's advice at that time was, listen, we're both merely servants of Christ. You shouldn't follow either of us. And, and, and so um, we see that Paul really means that by the way he's showing this concern for Apollos here. See, uh, in ministry, I mean, if you, if you haven't felt it yet, you might at some point. Uh, there's always this temptation um, it's easy to see another church in town or uh, another denomination or another campus group uh, as a rival that leads to this, this sense of bitterness. What, uh, what a beautiful example then we're seeing here as, as Paul sees someone who potentially could be his rival and yet uh, we see this love for him that he's, he's calling them to make sure Paulos lacks nothing for his journey, for what he needs to do. Because he understands that even if those two have a lot of different ideas, he acknowledges that you know, Apollos preaches Christ crucified. He's preaching the hope of forgiveness. And so there is unity in Christ that is greater than, than any potential rivalry there. Uh, so then his encouragement to the church is to provide for these missionaries. And, and really this is an immediate situation for the, for the church there on Crete to, to really put into practice this call to good works, right? Um, this is the tangible love of the covenant community. They're going to be traveling. Traveling was difficult. It was expensive at this time. And, and he's calling them, listen, supply, supply their needs. See, the, the beauty of good works is that, really, we don't have to look far to find them. There, there are so many open-ended opportunities around us. You know, it can be as, as simple as uh, making a few extra cookies next time you're baking and just taking them by the neighbors. They'll think you're a little weird, but what a great, kind effort towards them. Uh, maybe it's, you know, putting toothpaste. You know, Laura, some years ago, started putting toothpaste on my toothbrush when she put toothpaste on her toothbrush, and I thought, that's glorious. Um, you know, so now I'm bitter when she doesn't, but uh, <laughs> things like that, you know, it, it can be giving time that you have. If you have time to, to give it to someone in need, moving things, whatever it might be. If you have money, being able to supply the, the needs that someone needs for something. Our, you know, our devotion to good works can be for, for strangers, it can be for family members, uh, but always for the glory of God, not, not self, the glory of God. Um, and so, you know, ask yourself often, what do I have that they need? Or what, do I, what can I do that might be a blessing to someone today? You know, if we're constantly asking these things, we're going to identify opportunities for these beautiful works. Um, you know, in this way then, as Colossians 1.10 puts it, we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then Paul closes the letter. He has this, this final beautiful phrase, Grace be with you all. Now, I'm from Texas, so it would be a shame if I let this go. Uh, that is literally that beautiful Texan phrase, and intelligent Southerners using it too, grace be with all y'all. It is literally the word all in the second person plural of the word you. It is all y'all. And so I will tell you, they have the translation wrong here. <laughs> at, least, at least where I'm from. Uh, so anyway, working in unity, right? Uh, we started talking about bees, and one of the beautiful things about bees is they work in unity, and the substance they make is that wonderful stuff we call honey. Honey is the only, only natural food that never spoils, and I know you're thinking Twinkie. That's why I said natural food. Uh, you know, if you dug up a jar of honey that was buried with King Tut, you could safely eat that today. 
Um, I won't recommend that. Who knows what King Tut put in there. But the honey itself would be good. Uh, you know, and, and yet if the bees all turned on each other, you know, today, the interesting thing is that uh, the hive wouldn't make it through the winter. Uh, we think about how we eat, eat the honey. We take a portion of it, and yet that honey is what uh, they live off through the winter. Uh, and yet when they dwell in harmony and, and peaceably with each other, the, the hive continues to flourish. Um, they even divide at some point when they're flourishing. You know, in a, in a good way, they, they do hive planting. Uh, the church, the covenant community is very similar. You know, when we're dwelling in, in unity, when we are uh, looking to our eternal king who has graciously given us life, the church flourishes. We flourish, growing in faith and, and seeing the joyous fruits of good works, bringing goodness to our neighbors and glory to our God. So then I want to I close with a statement. It's by a guy named Tim Chester. Um, as he reflects back on this, this third chapter of Titus, uh, he's British. I'm going to read it in normal American English because I can't pull off a British accent. Um, he writes this. He says, We live in a harsh, selfish, uncaring culture. In this context, listen again to the words of Titus 3, 1 and 2. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do what is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. And continues, he says, Imagine a community within our society that is subject to authorities, obedient, and ready to do whatever is good, a community that slanders no one, which is peaceable and considerate, and which shows gentleness to all people without discrimination, that community would commend the kindness and the love of God our Savior. That community would shine like stars as it held to the word of life and held out the word of life. So let us, let us think often of the gospel. Let us speak often of the gospel. Remembering our, our own failure, remembering our, our place of helplessness, remembering just the depths of our own depravity, and, and then to remember that, that God gloriously intervened in history to redeem a people for his own possession at great cost to himself, the cost of, of Christ, his son upon the cross. And so may the, may the gospel be a, a place of rest for your weary soul and the fuel that moves you to love your neighbor with great joy. Let's pray.